The book of Joel is found more or less halfway through your Bible. Table of Contents is your best bet for finding it. You have, you have your wisdom literature, then you have your major prophets so named just because their books are longer. They have longer ministries and more to say. And then you have the minor prophets so named just because their books are shorter. The first one's Hosea, and right after that we have the little book of Joel, where we'll be spending the next three weeks. <clears throat> Before we look at, at Joel, we'll be looking at chapter 1 and the first 17 verses of chapter 2 today. But before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you and praise you for the privilege of being your people and for the privilege of having your revelation to us through your word. Father, I praise you for the way you work and you have been working to build your church for 2,000 years using broken men, using broken vessels, uh, through the proclamation of your word, through the work of your spirit to transform, to redeem, to prepare a peculiar people set apart for yourself. And we praise you that we get to be that people by your grace alone. Lord, I pray as we look into your word today that you would speak through your word that what you have for us from the book of Joel, you would bring to heart, that you would help us to learn, that you would continue to transform us into the image of your Son, that Jesus would be lifted high, and that you would be glorified this morning. Father, I pray, despite all the hindrances that I bring to this uh, exercise, that you would be glorified, that your truth would be clearly proclaimed, and that your church would be built up. We pray this in your name. We pray this for your glory. We pray this by your spirit. We pray this in Christ alone. Amen. Every once in a while, we as a society go through events that are life-altering. We go through challenges, we go through trauma, we go through disaster together in a way that transforms life as we know it. The Ukraine is going through a season like that right now. They are having life on the ground transformed and we read about it, we feel for them, we sympathize, we pray, we send aid. But at the end of the day, life in the Ukraine will be transformed forever as a result of what they're going through. For people on the ground, for refugees that are scattered around the world, Nothing will return to normal. It might return to a sense of normalcy, but it will be completely different from anything they've lived before. We as a society encountered a little bit of that on September 11, 2001. Now, this is a young church, and some of us may not remember that day too well. I was doing my undergrad at that time. I was studying at York University, and I remember my first class that Tuesday morning was at 11. And I rolled out of bed and heard what was happening and turned on the TV just in time to see the second plane strike the World Trade Center. And suddenly, North America went on lockdown. We didn't know what was going to happen next. Shortly after, there was the plane that just missed the Pentagon. Life was transformed completely. 
those events led to a war, the invasion of Iraq, and then the invasion of Afghanistan, or sorry, the, other or the, the opposite order. They led to a stock market crash. They led to tightened security that still affects us today. Life as we knew it was changed, was transformed, and we are still affected. The book of Joel is written at a time like this in God's people, for God's people. Disaster is upon them. Now, to be fair, we're not sure exactly when the book is written. There's not enough historical markers to tell us which disaster God's people were facing. There's talk of a plague of locusts. There's talk of possibly drought and dryness in the land. There's, there's language that indicates fires raging. And there's language that indicates an invading army. So now were these four disasters that just descended upon the people, bam, 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 bam. Or were they one disaster that the prophet is writing poetically about, like an army that descends on them like a plague of locusts that diverts waterways, which was done in war at that time, that sets fire in everything in their wake, which was done at war at that time. We are not really sure, but it doesn't matter for us so much this morning. What matters is, in the life of God's people, in the communal life of God's people, Israel, centered in Jerusalem at this time, disaster had struck. Things were changing, life was being turned upside down, and likely nothing would return to the old normal. Life would never be the same. Church, if you've lived through the last two and a half years, then you've lived and are living through the fallout of unprecedented, life-changing, calamitous disaster. Now, things don't seem so bad now as they did two years ago. But over the last two years, work came to a halt for many, as, they, as it did in the book of Joel, as we're about to read. People's wealth and security and stability were eaten up, just like in the book of Joel. Corporate worship ground to a halt, just like in the book of Joel. Some sought to escape into substance abuse, just like in the book of Joel. There was panic and tension and anxiety and stress. People didn't know what was happening. People didn't know what was going to happen. And this spread through society, just like in the book of Joel. Everyone was affected by the pain and the trauma. Gladness dried up and grief multiplied among God's people. We have lived through similar circumstances, and we don't even know if we're through, do we? Who knows what's going to happen come winter? Another lockdown? Who knows what's going to happen in a year or two years or five years as the economic outflow of what's happened continues to, to unfold? In the poorest nations in the world, protests are raging because the price of life has become impossible. Events like this often are followed by political turmoil and unrest. We don't know what's going to be happening in the next five years. Will we be spared? We were hit by calamity. Disaster has struck, and in many ways, life will never be the same. Joel speaks to us. What he's written in this book was written for Israel back 2,000 and something years ago. But what he has to say has so much bearing on our lives today. We have so much to learn from it. And so church, when calamity strikes, when disaster descends on us, how should we as God's people respond? When disaster is upon us and the world is shaking, 
Or in the language of Hebrew poetry, when the mountains that are stable and solid begin to teeter and totter and crumble, when the, when the waters that are dark and tumultuous and temp- tempestuous and mysterious begin to surge and rise, what is true and important for God's people to hang on to? As we look at Joel 1.1 to 2.17 this morning, we're going to see four timeless truths from God's word. Truths that are very important for God's people to hang on to in times of disaster. And our big idea for this morning is times of disaster are great opportunities for God's people to return to what really matters. In disaster, turn to Yahweh. Turns times of disaster are opportunities for God's people to return to their God. I urge you, church, to take these truths to heart because chances are disaster is not going to end in our lives. It's possible there will be another pandemic. It's possible there will be war. It's possible there will be more calamity. It's likely that in our personal lives we will face terrible affliction yet to come that we don't see yet. But these truths are invaluable for God's people to cling to through times like those. So would you stand with me as we read from Joel 1 to chapter 2 and verse 17. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Where the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. Where the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And where the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the minister of the Lord, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. 
wildebeests groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness. There is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the and weapons. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withhold their shining. The Lord utters his voice. Before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. Who, he who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very, excuse me, very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So maybe there was an unprecedented plague of locusts, one like never before. But locusts weren't uncommon at the time. They were a terrible, a horrible blight in a society that relied on agriculture. But they weren't something that you tell your children's children about. They were too frequent. More likely, Joel is talking about the invasion that destroyed Judah and destroyed Jerusalem. But the details are less important than the aftermath. 
God's people, often referred to as a vine or a vineyard in the prophets, referred to as a fig tree from whom God looks for ripe figs. They lie plundered, they lie splintered, they lie destroyed, devastated by this calamity. Disaster upon them, and it's terrifying. It's all-consuming. The times Joel was living through are not the same as the times we're living through, but there are many parallels. So in times like these, church, what does Joel, inspired by the Spirit of God, urge his people to do? What is of primary importance for us to remember? When the stars are falling from the sky, when everything that is stable and solid is collapsing, how do we react in a way that honors God? The first thing I'd like to point you to from our text, and listen up, church, this is so important for us to hear, for us to take to heart, and for us to cling to. This is the glue that holds the universe together. The first thing that we see in Joel's text is that God is sovereign. And this truth underlines everything. Our first, time to re- our first point this morning, vital to remember in times of crisis, is that Yahweh, the word, the name that is translated as Lord, because the Hebrew people, the Israelites, would never pronounce this word. It was so holy and sacred. Yahweh is sovereign. He's in control even over calamity. It may not feel like it when our lives are being turned upside down. It never does. I've never... I've always struggled to cling to this when disaster strikes, but it is true, and it is a truth worth clinging to. When disaster strikes, Yahweh is sovereign. In fact, what Joel says is that even in this calamity, even this calamity is from him. He's the one Joel cries out to. He's the one Joel urges the people to cry out to. In chapter 2 and verse 11, he calls this destroying army, ravaging God's people, God's army and God's camp. And that wasn't easy for Israel to hear. But the testimony of Scripture, church, is that even evil armies, even evil kings like Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament and Nero in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, are called God's servants. God uses drought, God uses plague and disease, God uses natural disaster and war as his tools. He doesn't cause them, he doesn't cause evil but he uses them as tools in his sovereign plan. Now there's this concept that runs through the book of Joel, runs through the, through the minor prophets of the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. This is a day of reckoning. The, the idea is that God is holy, God is sovereign, but God is also patient. And so as God calls people to himself, as God calls people to live according to his instructions... He gives us the choice to choose to obey or to choose to go our own way. But there's always consequences for our choices. And for those who choose to disobey, a reckoning is always coming. One day, we will stand before the throne of God and give account for our lives. But even before that, when evil runs rampant, when evil multiplies in our lives and in the lives of those we have power over, sometimes the Lord brings a day of reckoning that puts an end to evil. The Hebrew term here is literally a day, but it doesn't have to be a 24-hour period. These are times of great upheaval, though, often written about prophetically as earth-shaking and earth-shattering. The overthrow of nations is spoken of in this way. The death of kings, major catastrophes, events that change our lives, like COVID. 
What ancient Israel expected, though, was that the day of the Lord would be the outpouring of God's wrath against their enemies, the Assyrians, the Philistines, the Midians, the Babylonians. This would be a time when, just like at the, ex- the Exodus, Yahweh would see the suffering of his people and intervene to bring deliverance to Israel. But what the prophets in Joel here clearly tell us is that Israel was just as guilty. Israel was just as sinful. And so God's intervention was coming not just against the nations, but also against his own people. The day of the Lord comes against Israel herself. And we can't understand this without understanding the biblical concept of covenant. A covenant is basically a contract, an agreement between two parties. A commitment that establishes and governs their relationship. We don't use this language so often today. We still speak of the covenant of marriage, a coming apart, coming together, sorry, not never apart. A coming together, a solemn vow, a commitment that two people make to each other that lasts and binds them. But in the, in the ancient world, this was common language and was more often used between kings, either allies or uh, a, a lord and a vassal, a subjugated nation. They would make covenants between themselves, uh, delineating their relationship for years to come. And often they would cut animals, cut them apart, hack them. And the idea was that if either of them was unfaithful to the terms of that covenant, they both had obligations. The ruler had obligations. The subject had obligations. But if either of them were unfaithful, may it be done to them as it was done to those animals. Some of, the, some of us this week in preparation for this message have been reading through Genesis. Uh, we read Genesis 12 and 15 and saw God's establishment of a covenant with Abraham very vividly depicting this hacking apart of animals. We read through Deuteronomy 4 and 7 and saw God talking about the covenant at Sinai that was mediated through Moses between God and the people. And we, talked, we saw how God, through this covenant, sought to bless Abraham and his descendants. He sought to bless the children of Israel with the blessing of walking with him. Blessing would be poured out on them, poured out on them for obedience. They would be a symbol to the nations of how glorious it was to walk with the living God. But there were consequences for disobedience. There were stipulations that if the people were unfaithful, terrible curses would fall on them. Their curses are graphic and the curses are horrible. You can read about them in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And what we see in the Old Testament, and acutely through the prophets, and certainly in Joel, is the people again and again choose to be unfaithful to their God. They follow after other gods. They follow ways of behaving that God hates god sends prophets to call them back to warn them of coming judgment to warn them and pull them back to yahweh but they won't listen and that's where joel's people find themselves in our text this morning continued and persistent faithlessness has led to the curses for breaking the covenant the day of the lord has arrived but even here even with an foreign oppressive nation possibly invading or a plague of locusts descending yahweh is still and completely in control and so turning back to him is the people's only hope their only recourse in their predicament when and this is what joel urges them to do now christian i don't know about you 
But when things don't go my way, when disaster strikes, I am often tempted to try and get back in control, to try and scrabble and claw my way back to safety or stability or security. Are you ever tempted like me? What scripture clearly states from beginning to end is that nothing happens randomly or by chance. Not this disaster that's overtaken Joel's people. Not the disasters that have turned our lives upside down. We have no control over things, but that's okay because God does. Behind everything lies the sovereign hand of God. And if we know this, as scripture clearly teaches it to us, it means that we can trust that he has a plan and a purpose that he's unfolding. Well, we don't always get to see the plan in the midst of disaster, in the midst of calamity, when our lives are turned upside down, when war descends, when, when plague and pestilence and worldwide pandemics descend, we don't always see the purposes and plan of God. But we can trust that we are in his hands. And if we are in his hands, we are safe. And this means we don't need to panic. This means we don't need to scramble for control. This means we don't need to fear. We can rest in Yahweh even as the earth gives way and the mountains crumble into the heart of the seas. Yahweh reigns. His plans will not be thwarted. Nothing takes him by surprise. Remember and be comforted by the fact that even when things seem crazy, even when no one knows what to do or quite what's happening, when social structures seem like they may be collapsing, and when life as we know it might be changing forever, the Lord is still on his throne. Yahweh is sovereign in disaster. This is our first point this morning. And if he's sovereign, he has a purpose. We might not see it, we might not understand it, but we can trust him. He loves us. Our second point is closely related to our first point. If you look at our text this morning, church, the purpose of chapter 1 is basically to call God's people to lament for what's happening and what's yet to come. In verses 9 and 13, Joel actually directly calls the people to lamentation. And our second point this morning is that in times of disaster, lamentation is appropriate and wise and good and healthy. Mourning is normal. When calamity strikes, God's word encourages God's people to lament in times of tragedy. There's a time to weep. And we see this in Joel. We see this so clearly in the Psalms we've been going through. Now, people have vastly different um, reactions to affliction. Have you noticed this? Some people seek to escape. We see in Joel chapter 1 that people sought to escape into alcohol, into drinking. And today we have alcohol, we have drugs, we have video games and apps, we have social media, we have entertainment, we have food, we have sleep. We have all manner of ways in which sinful, broken people seek to self-medicate from pain. Other people try to anger and try to gain back the control they, they think they're losing as if we had control in the first place. They find someone to blame and let them have it, thinking that that will make things better. And still others hide and try to run from the issue or pretend that it isn't happening and hope that it goes away. Human beings brokenly living in a sinful world have found all manner of unhealthy and sometimes even sinful ways to cope with the pain of life. And yet what scripture models for us 
And what scripture points us to is a healthier way, and that's biblical lament. Biblical lamentation involves a turning to God in our grief rather than turning inward or outward or to circumstances. Biblical lamentation involves voicing our pain, our confusion, our hurt to God. And if there's one thing the Psalms show us is that he can take it. Scripture is replete with men and women of faith who wrestle with God. And in the midst of horrible circumstances that they don't understand, we have the privilege of reading of their anger of their confusion, even their bad theology sometimes. And we see that God is bigger and he can take their tirades and he can take their ranting. Have you ever been there? I was there a few years ago. Our oldest daughter, Bella, is 10 right now and she's here and she's well, praise God. But when she was two, she was diagnosed with leukemia and we went through a dark season in our lives, but also a season counterintuitively filled with light. The Lord carried us. He brought us so near to himself. It was a season of such intimacy and joy, even as we wept. But after two years of treatment, she was declared cancer-free. And having been missionaries in Africa, we returned to Africa. We saw the Lord open doors. We were so sure the Lord was calling us back. And while we were there, a year in, she relapsed. And I just spiraled down. I couldn't understand how he would have led us there, how he could have opened those doors and then just ripped us off. 30 hours, she went for a blood test, and 30 hours later, we were in a plane flying back to McMaster Children's Hospital. It was brutal emotionally for me. I couldn't understand it. I, by the grace of God, I clung to his sovereignty. By the grace of God, I knew that he was loving and good and just And so the way my theology went wonky is in thinking that maybe I wasn't under his grace. Maybe he was done with with me or was casting me away or rejecting me in some way. Our theology goes, affliction does to our theology what a strong fist does to putty. It just smushes it and things go all over the place. But in affliction, by the grace of God, he can bring us to a place of wrestling with him, of ranting at him of of being confused and not understanding but of still trusting and in his grace after months of being curled up in a ball in pain and in anger and confusion in his grace he brought me to that place where i didn't understand any better where i didn't see his plan but where i could trust that he was good and that he had a purpose and that i could trust him through this this process of wrestling through that in a way that's honest and real and yet clings to God, of begging God to bring us to a place of peace and trust in the midst of our pain, that's lamentation. And we see this in Job, we see this in Psalms, we see this in so many places in Scripture. This has been part of being the people of God for thousands of years that we seem to have largely forgotten this because in our day, it's so easy to self-medicate. We have so much anesthesia to impart on ourselves, to give ourselves so that we don't have to deal with our pain. But if God is trying to do something in us, if God is trying to work us, work in us, he's going to keep bringing things up until we do. This is part of being his, God's people. Lamentation is the healthy way to deal with our pain. And this seems intrinsic to worshiping a God. It seems indispensable to worshiping a God who is way bigger than any little box we could try to put him in, a God we won't always understand. 
This is healthy. And this is modeled for us throughout Scripture. If you are going through a season of deep pain or suffering right now, or if you know someone else who is, and you'd like to encourage them, there's a book that comes very highly recommended. It's by an author named Mark Brogoff. His name is in the questions for discussion in your bulletin. And it's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. We have a copy, and if you'd like to borrow it, we'd be most glad to lend it to you. Biblical lamentation is how God calls us to deal with the pain of overwhelming events in our life. So what we see this morning, church, is in the midst of calamity, God is sovereign. And we can trust Him, even when we don't understand. And in the day of disaster, lament is an appropriate way of dealing with our pain. Our third point this morning is often tied into biblical lament in the Psalms. We read in our text this morning, the disaster has come upon this nation, but the disaster is of their own doing. This people have been per persistently unfaithful to the covenant with their God, and He has suffered long with them. He has been patient with them. He has sent them prophets to call them back, but they have worn God's patience down. And as a result, the curses of the covenant have fallen upon them. Repentance was needed on their part. But we see in Joel 12 and 13, Joel called them back to Yahweh, called them to repent and turn away from their sin. And now he uses language that was very expressive of how repentance was done in that day. But what he calls them to is repentance from the heart, repentance that turns away from a way of behaving, from a way of walking, from a way of living, and turns back to the way of the Lord, which is what repentance is. Now this gets a little complex for us today. The people of Israel in Old Testament times were under a very specific covenant with God, the covenant of Sinai that Moses mediated, so it is often referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. The stipulations of that covenant was that God would be faithful to His people if His people would be faithful to Him, that He would bless them, that they would worship Him properly and follow His instructions, but then He would bless them. And as a result, all the people of the world would see the blessing that it came to walk from walking with the living God. His desire was that all peoples from all nations see their example and turn to Him to restore to all peoples the access that they had to Him, that we had to Him in Eden, but that was lost as a result of sin. But Israel, despite being this channel for blessing to the world, was unfaithful to the covenant. The covenant stipulated obedience, and that disobedience would carry tremendous curses. And in our text today, they have continued and persisted in disobedience, and reckoning has arrived. This is the day of Yahweh. Now, we are not under this covenant at Sinai, the covenant of works. When disaster strikes us, it is not for the same reason that it's striking Israel here. Never. I just want to be clear on this. And yet, Scripture tells us, through Hebrews 12, 7 to 13, for example, and in several other places, that God disciplines the children He loves. That sometimes when sin enters our lives and we become comfortable in it, God sends suffering. God may even send calamity to a people or to a church or to a group to confront sin, to confront error, to confront things in their lives that shouldn't be in their lives. And today, Christian, God may be sending suffering in our lives as discipline because He loves us. 
and is committed to making us more like Christ. Now again, just to be abundantly clear, suffering is not always a result of discipline, but sometimes it can be. And when trial comes, when suffering comes, when disaster strikes, it's not a bad time. In fact, it's an excellent time to examine ourselves and see if there might be things we need to repent of. If God, who is sovereign over all things in our lives, might be allowing these circumstances to bring us back to himself. My daughter didn't relapse with cancer so that God could deal with things in me primarily. But through that difficult season, I was able to see sin in my life that I was com- had been completely blind to. Like what an idol ministry had become to me. And how when it was ripped away, I fell apart. Like how presumptuous I had become in my relationship with God, thinking too highly of myself and needing to be humbled. And both of those are still in progress and still in process. But disaster and calamity and affliction are excellent times for us to look into our own hearts, to look into our own lives and see if there might not be sin that we need to repent of as there most certainly was in the lives of the Israelites in Joel chapter 1 and 2. Now, I really, really caution you against looking left or right. We don't know a thousandth of what God is doing in our own lives, and He is working so many things. We don't know a hundred thousandth of what God is doing in the lives of our neighbors. It would be severely unwise of you to look at your neighbor suffering and say, this is a result of sin. Don't go there. But in your own life, this might be good opportunities to look and examine our own hearts and see if there's anything that we need to repent of, to turn back to the Lord. So we see from our text this morning that in disaster, Yahweh is sovereign. We see that in disaster, lamentation is appropriate. And we see that in disaster, repentance might be necessary. Affliction is an opportunity for God's children to examine themselves And see whether there are areas in our lives where we need to return to Yahweh. Repentance might be necessary in disaster. And our fourth and final point this morning, church, which we see in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 2, is that Yahweh is merciful even on the day of disaster. Now, this people have forsaken their part in the covenant with Yahweh. They have been faithless. And through persistent rebellion, they have incurred God's wrath on them. God, by His character, by His holiness, by His purity, cannot allow sin to remain unpunished. He would be untrue to His character if He did that. And their reckoning from God in the form of this invading army is upon them. Yet even now, on the day of disaster, when the sword hangs over them, Joel is calling them to repent and return to Yahweh for mercy. Even now, it's not too late. Joel reminds the people of the same truths we heard in Jonah last year, that Yahweh is a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. He relents from disaster. And so Joel can say, who knows whether even now he will not turn and relent. Now, Jonah hated this about God's character. He didn't want to bring, well, he didn't hate this about God. I'm sure he was thankful for mercy for himself. But he didn't want mercy to be extended to the Ninevites, the enemies of Israel. Joel longed 
for the Israelites to turn back to God. But whether God's people have loved this or hated this, this has been a part of the character, this has been core to the character of the God we worship, to the God we see in Scripture. We see this all through Scripture. God is holy. He hates sin. He will not tolerate sin. He will not allow sin to remain unpunished. He cannot do that and still be true to His purity and the holiness of His character. And as the creator of all things, this is His prerogative amongst the creation that He made. And yet, God loves the people He created in His image. We see through the Old Testament that as people turn away from Him, He is patient and urges them to come back. As they harden their hearts and reject Him and run the opposite way, He is gentle and takes His time with them and tries to woo them back and reaches out again and again in love, reaches out again and again in grace to the prophets who try to call them back to repentance. And in His graciousness, He even reveals more and more of His character to people who are totally unworthy of Him hoping that in seeing the beauty of his love, of his character, and of the wisdom in his plan, people would be drawn to him as he creates a people who are holy and set apart from himself, who represent him in the world today. If you read, if you read with me Genesis 15 in preparation for the sermon, you probably saw Abraham hack apart those animals. And again, this was done so that both members of the covenant would see the consequences of covenant disobedience. May it be done to either one of them what was done to these animals if they are unfaithful. Christian, you and I have been unfaithful. We may not have been unfaithful to the covenant of Sinai, but you and I have been unfaithful to God's holy, perfect standard that He requires of all human beings. We have sinned. Yet even as in the Old Testament, so also today, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And He can afford to be this gracious because He has paid for our unfaithfulness. On the cross 2,000 years ago, the God who has always been faithful, the God who has been steadfast, who has always been true to His covenant, who has held on fast to His people, paid his part, paid for this, our part in covenant unfaithfulness. He was hacked apart for us. For the first time in, et in eternity, God the Father and God the Son were torn asunder. And so the Son on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father and God the Son were hacked apart so that you and I wouldn't have to be hacked apart so that you and I could return to God without bearing the punishment that we could not bear. But what this means to all who come to Him in faith, for all who follow Christ, for all who by faith cling to God's promises and His sacrifice and become part of God's covenant people, is that we are safe. There is no disaster, there is no calamity, there is no catastrophe nor tragedy, not in this world and not beyond. There is no power in existence, not our own sin, not even the devil. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If we have come to God in faith in Jesus, through God, through faith in Jesus, we are His. On the final day of Yahweh, when all men all women will stand before the throne of God in judgment and give account for their lives. You and I will not measure up. 
you and I will not have lived perfect enough lives. But in Christ, Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfection is imputed to us and we are safe. This is how much God loves us. And so if you are here and you don't know of this great love, if you are overwhelmed by the guilt of your sin, or if you are home and listening and you are overwhelmed by the guilt of your sin, know that even leading up to the day of judgment, there is mercy at the throne of grace for all who ask in Christ. If you are here and you know of this great love, but you have gone astray and you know your own heart, you know what no one else but you and the Lord see. If you have allowed sin to come into your life, it, even now there is mercy for you if you will turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. God loves us and paid terribly, dearly to make this possible. Turn to Christ. And if you'd like to hear more or learn more or pray with someone, please come talk to any leader in this church after this. We'd be glad to pray with you. If you haven't yet tasted this love, turn to Christ while there is time. So this morning, church, we see in our text from Joel 1 and 2 a dark day for God's people. A day of disaster, a day of calamity. And through the example of God's dealing with them, we learn four truths that are vitally important for God's people to remember in calamity, in disaster, in affliction, in suffering. We learn that God is sovereign and we can trust Him even when we don't see or understand His plans, even when we don't see or understand why He's doing or allowing what He's allowing. We learn that in disaster, in calamity, when everything gets turned upside down, lamentation is healthy and appropriate. We should weep, but let's weep clinging to the Lord. This is biblical lamentation. We learn that in disaster and calamity, it may be that repentance is called for. It may be that this is the grace of God allowing us to turn back to himself. And we learn that even in calamity, even on the day of disaster, even when our sins have piled up, God is still merciful and there is still time to come to him in repentance and ask for his grace. Who knows? He might relent, but he will forgive ultimately. We are unfaithful. We deserve the consequences of our sin, but Christ bore them so that in him we can be reconciled to God and have love poured out on us as an ocean instead of the wrath that we deserve. May we cling to Christ and Christ alone. Fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, and run in him. Praise God.